Last week we started looking at a letter in the Bible called Jude. It's a small letter. It's right before Revelation. It's, it's near the end, but I'm, I'm excited to walk through some of that content. And uh, this series that we're in that's covering this is called The Lost Cause. Or actually, it's not a lost cause. And uh, if, if you've ever used, I don't know if you've ever used that phrase before or not. A lost cause is somebody who has no chance of succeeding. You know, sometimes we slip into some negative mindsets and we may view ourselves uh, or even or other people as a lost cause. We get maybe tempted to give up. Sometimes we might get tempted to give up on the faith or we might get tempted to give up on people that have wandered and just think, man, they are, they're just too far gone. Or we may get tempted to give up on any hope of change in myself. Man, I'm just too much of a mess. And the book of Jude, the one that we're looking at, it's, it is one of the shortest in the Bible, but it packs a punch. And actually, somebody last week told me, like, oh, you're starting off the new year with Jude. Like, bold move. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of punchy stuff in there, even though it's just 25 verses long. And so uh, in this three-week series, we'll read all 25 verses together, different verses each week. But I want to study this letter to find some powerful responses when it feels like we're fighting a lost cause. And to get your mind around some of the principles that we're going to look at, I want you to think about some really popular products that have gone viral. And you may know this already, but people buy products because of influencers. There's other reasons that you may buy products, but this is at least a phenomenon that happens. I don't know if you've ever seen a craze for maybe a toy or a particular shoe or a water bottle or something where for a period of time they just can't keep enough of these on the shelves and everyone's going crazy buying this thing. I remember the first time this I experienced this in my life as a kid I remember it was Tickle Me Elmo was the one that I don't know if you remember that that one got out of control I don't know if anybody has those now but uh, here's one here's currently one here's a picture of does anybody know what those are? Birkenstocks. Oh, Burke. You don't even say the full word anymore. You just say Burke. This is Burke. Okay. So Birkenstock is, these are shoes that really since the 60s and the 70s were ugly. <laughs> for several decades, um, they, these shoes were for, I'm, I'm quoting, I'm not giving you my opinion. These shoes were for hippies, grannies, and tourists. <laughs> That's a quote. And uh, you would wear these shoes in secret dorms when your pajamas and nobody was looking. It was, like, it was almost like wearing orthopedic shoes, is what it, it, Birkenstocks were. And that was really the way that people saw them and viewed them. Am I, am I right? Do you, are you familiar with this? Yeah. So and, and they started gaining popularity. Um, around 2012, there were some fashion designers that started showing them and then making shoes that looked like them. And it started, this, this model started getting uh, some notoriety. But from 2012 to 2018, the sales tripled uh, $800 million is what the, the, the shoes were, the brand was worth. In 2022, uh, a particular Birkenstock called the Boston Clog went viral on TikTok. I think I have another sh- uh, shoe picture here. And um, after, after that thing on TikTok, they sold out, after, especially because they were being worn by celebrities people like Kendall Jenner. And so retailers started selling them for double the price, double, double the retail price. 
And um, the demographics they saw as they were looking at who's buying these was mostly baby boomers and millennials. I would think people that consume a lot of social media. And then sales surged again recently after the Birkenstock Arizona sandal was featured in the Barbie movie. And Barbie had to choose between a high heel and a Birkenstock sandal. <laughs> and so um, what, what they, the article I read says that the average person who owns Birkenstocks owns uh, at least three pairs. So I don't know if anybody would corroborate that or not. But um, all right, so that's one. So, so ha hold that in your mind for a second. I'm going somewhere with this. All right, second thing. Here's another one. Here's another picture. This is the Stanley bottle. What's the name for it? Does anybody know? The Stanley, the Stanley Cup. That's, that's, all you, that's all you call it. So this brand, oh, by the way, both of these are very, very old brands. Um, this is actually a 110-year-old brand, Stanley. So it's been around for a long, long time. And originally it was marketed to construction workers and old army veterans and just old dudes, and loggers and things like that. Um, but with the help of some influencers, this recently got a lot of popularity. And um, there was at one point, they were trying to really push this product, particularly this bottle. And um, they said, let's make 10,000 of these cups and see how fast we can sell them, which was kind of a gamble because they weren't selling it. They had the right uh, social media ads and 5,000 sold within four hours. And then it, and then it went viral. Um, you know, there was posts. Actually, one of, the, one of the original posts was this, there was a statement, somebody, uh, they had women, they had, they had women on social media promoting these bottles. And um, they said, this, this one, of all your water bottles, this one will be your favorite, just trust, was the phrase. And um, what's amazing to me about this is, one, how old these, how old these uh, products and really these companies are, but how fast things can turn around in the marketing world. And, so people buy products because of influencers, and what they, really, they can really trace the sales to what was being promoted, especially on social media. And so people are being influenced to buy these things. In addition to products, I believe people also buy false destructive ideas. So if you, if you kind of keep, the, if you keep this you know, Birkenstock analogy or these, these old water bottles, it doesn't matter how ugly something is. <laughs> something that at once seems so ugly and so repulsive, somehow public opinion shifts. It's amazing. How does that happen? It begins to shift the opinion of individuals. It doesn't even, so in a similar way, when it comes to ideas, it doesn't necessarily matter how untrue an idea is or how repulsive a lie might be. It can start to gain traction in our culture. And when Jude saw this happening in a moral sense, he, he wrote at the beginning of his letter, he says, some people have come in by stealth, in verse 4, I don't have this written down anywhere um, on your handout, but in verse 4 he says, some people have come in by stealth, meaning like ideas and people creep in unnoticed, and, and, then, and then people start getting influenced and they don't realize what's happening. And we live in a world where it's really hard to know what's true and what's not true. You can Google search anything, and you'll find very convincing articles on one side and on the other side that oppose each other. So we, we live right now in a world of very um, highly competing truth claims. Also, we live in a world with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of error, and a lot of deception. And so in the first half of Jude last week, we read about 
some of the moral boundaries that get blurred, people get really confused about what's okay. How do you, for example, how do you define love? What kinds of love are acceptable? Well, how do, you, how do you define marriage? What kind of marriage is acceptable? Where are the boundaries sexually? What are the proper roles for women in society? How about women in the church? Or how, how should we view male and female? Or when it comes to religion or following God, how do you view that? What, what does even the phrase, the grace of God, even mean practically? And so some of these ideas, I just threw out a bunch of ideas right now, where um, there, there are some very strongly held ideas in our culture right now that at one point were very uncommon, unpopular, even repulsive, even considered irrational. There's ideas strongly held in our culture now that used to be considered irrational, you know, opposed to biology even. And so right now, people believe some really upside-down things. How does that happen? How does it happen that these ideas get so strongly embraced? Right now, truth is very much considered relative. Like, you just live how you want to live, that's all right. Tolerance is a very prized value uh, where we, we ought to approve and affirm any lifestyle, so to speak, or especially in younger people. So here's, here's a question to kind of get our minds thinking about it. When it comes to the products, is it possible that you have been influenced to buy some products that you now own? I mean, probably, right? Probably. And by the way, I'm not throwing any judgment because we, we have um, multiple Stanley bottles and I'm not even, I don't even know how many Birkenstocks in our house. <laughs> so I think the stats hold true. So I'm not saying, by the way, if you have Stanleys, you're a deceived person. Um, uh, so maybe, maybe, maybe you've been influenced just in a marketing sense, and you just got caught up in these fads and these ideas, and, and there's probably nothing wrong with that. But when it comes to ideas, though, is it possible that you've been influenced in your understanding of truth? and what to believe, how to live your life. Probably. Our culture has caused many people to become doubtful and wandering. That's the reason Jude wrote this letter, because the same thing was happening in the first century. Jude saw these, uh, these ideas about how to live your life were creeping in unnoticed, and it was affecting Christians and churches. And he says, like, he's like, this is kind of urgent. You'll see he, he's writing... He's like, I wanted to write this, you know, cool letter about our salvation, but he's like, I had to, you know, can that for a second because there's like an urgent issue facing us where people are getting um, off track and they don't even know it. And so, and it's amazing how fast it happens. That thing with the water bottle selling, the ideas can sometimes go that fast too. Our world is very connected. And so the messages are all around us, the, the kinds of things that influence us and our ideas about reality and truth and love and marriage and all these things, all the ideas are in the movies we watch. They're in the series that we stream. Those ideas are in the podcasts that we listen to, the posts that we read and scroll through, through the people that we spend time with, all the advertising messages. So Jude, what he does is he uses a lot of imagery to describe influencers. And the term that the Bible would use is false teachers, but um, really what he's talking about is there, there's people that anytime they believe and promote ideas that, are, that run contrary to God's word, um, 
he uses some imagery to describe them. And so here, here in verse 12, this, we're, we're picking up where we left off last week. In verse 12, he says, These people are dangerous reefs at your love feasts as they eat with you out without reverence. So again, he's talking about people that are promoting false ideas. Um, they are shepherds who lo- only look after themselves. So it's, you know, people that um, get caught up in, in teaching uh, wrong ideas about God, uh, the reason that they're like reefs is because if you, if you buy it, if you buy the product, you can shipwreck your life. You can really destroy yourself and your relationships. He calls them shepherds in the sense that they're, they're almost like leaders. They're, they're respected people. They, they do have influence in shepherds or have this position of leadership, and, um, but really they, they only look after themselves. Um, he says they are like their waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead and uprooted. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars from whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. Again, a lot of different um, illustrations. These, uh, these ideas like shepherds and clouds and waves, these are all ideas and il- um, allusions to things that are mentioned in the Old Testament. He does a lot of referencing. Um, Ezekiel and Proverbs and Isaiah have some of these ideas. Uh, but basically what he's saying is these people are very self-absorbed. They create chaos wherever they go. No good thing ever comes from them. Again, remember, he's, he's talking about um, false teachers or people that, that don't care about the Bible or people that want to twist the Bible or people want to make the Bible say something that it doesn't say. And this is the impact. They just create chaos. And uh, he goes on and he talks about the judgment that's coming. He says, it was about these, these kinds of people, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, look, the Lord comes with tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. So, he references God's final day of judgment that will come on all evil. This is a quote from Enoch. Uh, Enoch was, there was a, a popular Jewish text uh, written supposedly by Enoch that's not in the Bible. Well, you can find a reference to Enoch when you look in, in the Old Testament. Uh, but this idea, this idea of God's coming judgment certainly is repeated throughout um, Deuteronomy, Zechariah, Isaiah, the Old Testament. And, and really, this, this message of God's coming judgment is a very unpopular one. So anytime, if you're just to casually go out and just chat with people about God coming and, and, and executing judgment on people, ungodly people, it's not, that's not a very, it's generally not a very <laughs> welcome discussion. People either want to say that's not going to happen, or they want to they um, mock it, mock the idea that, God would ever do that, or, or say that there's not a God, or just say that God's not like that. God's not like the kind of um, judging, wrathful God, and they try to just twist a very real thing that is going to happen. People maybe want to redefine who God is. Uh, maybe, maybe God's just sort of a, a generic being out there, and, or maybe it kind of soften the idea of God to be, God, God's the kind of guy who, I'm going to live my life the way I want to, but he's got my back. I'm just going to do my thing, and he's, he's got me. He's good. I'm, I'm good. I'll, I'll do what I want. You know, I, 
tip my hat, I'll do some respectful God things, but you know, ultimately he's got me. Or people would redefine God as a, a loving being who would never hold anyone accountable. And so that's the kind of thing that was happening uh, back in Jude's day, and now people are just kind of twisting this idea of God and his judgment. He said, um, these people are discontented grumblers, living according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. I think this is an encouragement to really be careful who you spend time with. The phrase discontented grumblers, um, I think is, is, grumbling is a thing that comes pretty naturally, I think, for most of us. Grumbling, complaining. Um, There are people, though, where it's sort of the normal language. It's just kind of, it's just everything. Just grumbling and complaining about a lot of things. I would say there's a caution here to be careful how much you spend time with people that generally are discontent and grumbling all the time um, or, or flattering, people that flatter out of their own advantage. Um, it, could be, it could be a source that begins to warp and twist your understanding of how life works. So finally, Jude turns the corner. He predicts all this judgment. In verse 17, he says, But you, dear friends, remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you... In the end time, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. One of the reasons um, it is good to stay away from grumblers and flatterers is because generally it does lead to division, creating division in the church or in relationships. So there's this warning here that's repeated by Jude. Jude gives this warning, but what he just said about there being scoffers and mockers in the end time Um, Peter says this, John writes about this, Paul does, even Jesus himself. So the threat is real. It reverberates throughout the Old and New Testament and is even happening now um, that there's going to be people that somehow just is, we get get, um, led astray and sometimes without even realizing it. Jude wanted us to feel the seriousness of... um, the way that false teachers depart from the gospel, and he wanted us to persevere in faithfulness. So last week, when we looked at this letter, we looked at some of the ways that we ourselves might get pulled in and how to avoid that. Now I want to look at something else he says, where we can look at the possibility of people that we know and love getting pulled in to deception, and their lives get off track. Um, not only how do, how do we contend for the faith, not just for ourselves, but for other people. So how, how are you supposed to treat somebody who is falling into sin? So maybe, maybe you're like, all right, I haven't, I haven't bought <laughs> all these wayward ideas, but I know people who are getting off track and they're getting confused. And maybe you can see some people in your life, man, they're starting to wander. Or they're like, oh, that's not, they're, they're maybe misinterpreting how the Bible works, how, what the Bible says. And, it may, and if you do, if you know anybody that's off track, it's concerning. It's, it's a little bit stressful because you may know people that you're like, no, I want, I, I, like, they need to know the truth. Like, they, I need to tell them. But like, I, sometimes you don't, maybe your hands are, you feel like your hands are tied. Maybe sometimes you might even, if, if not compassion, maybe our response might be to, to become hard-hearted and judgmental. And just like, man, those, they're, they're wandering and they're, they're just too far gone. You know, they've just... They're, they're going to get what's coming to them eventually. Or you might get despairing and just watching people wander. And the thing that Jude says is that we need to keep a soft heart 
and a merciful attitude toward the deceived. In verse 22, he says, Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So he, I think what he does here is he lists three categories of people that fall into, into deception, and the influencers or the false teachers are, are starting to, to gain ground in a person's life. And so there's these three categories. The first person, he says, have mercy on those who waver. That word waver, um, in some translations, is, is doubt. It's, it's a Greek word that uh, means a wavering uncertainty. Uh, really, to be at odds with yourself. If you, if you ever, if you, I don't know if you ever felt that way, you're, you feel like sort of internally conflicted, and maybe you're sort of wavering, and you're not feeling super stable. I don't know if you've ever, ever been there. If you, if you have ever been there, you can have compassion on people that, ha- that are there now. I don't know if you ever have wrestled with a decision or wrestled with an issue of sin, or maybe you've even wrestled with confessing something. You know, you ought to. But man, it's, it's hard to bring that into the light. Or maybe, maybe you've wrestled with how much you're willing to trust God and do the hard thing. Sometimes you're like, all right, if I'm going to take God seriously, that means I'm going, to make, I'm going to have to make a decision I'd really rather not make. So maybe those are the moments when you wrestle and you waver. That's the kind of person that's being described here. And I think the remarkable and comforting fact is that some of Jesus' first disciples, the people who personally saw and heard him do all those amazing things, they doubted. They wavered. You're like, the, guy, the guys that walked with Jesus, even, even those guys were on some pretty shaky ground in their faith. And that's sort of encouraging to me and, and hope-filling to me. Is it, is it any surprise then that some of us also, as we go through this walk of faith, that we also get some hesitant uncertainty, some wavering, maybe some, even some doubt, that I'm not sure if everything that I've seen and heard is the real deal. And Jude is one of those guys. Jude was one of Jesus' half-brothers, so he was one of Mary's and Joseph's sons. So he grew up with Jesus. And in John 7, 5, it, it tells us that none of Jesus' brothers believed he was the Christ. And so, basically, the complete unbelief is where Jude was at for the life of Jesus. And it wasn't until Jesus had died and was erected that he came to faith. And so I would imagine Jude realizes, man, I was full of doubt about Jesus actually being God, and Jesus had mercy on me. Man, there was a time when he's like, man, I, I doubted my brother's claims to divinity, and, and he helped me. And there's numerous other examples we see of Jesus being very merciful to doubters. I think some people might read this letter that Jude writes and, and take away this real intense adversarial tone. I mean, he's, there's all this evil in the world and all this judgment that's coming, and, and yeah, that, that's in there. He does take a stand with the truth. But when Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt, I would imagine there was a tender personal reflection of his own at that moment. Like, I'm coming out of a past where I doubted. I've completely doubted that Jesus was who he said he is. 
So sometimes when people are on the fence and they're wrestling with a moral issue, sometimes we want to just yank them down on the right side of the fence. You know, like, I, I see you're wrestling with that decision. Like, I know it's good for you. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force you to believe and land in the right spot. And we, we want to do that, but you, you can't do that. You can't make somebody believe the right thing. And it doesn't, God doesn't say to do that also. He's, he, there's no yanking instructions here about forcing people. He says, be merciful to those who are struggling over competing truth claims. Don't crush them. Don't condemn them. Don't get despairing also. Don't freak out. Pray for them. What would it be to be merciful towards somebody who's doubting? It would be to sit with them, to dialogue, to take some time. But most of all, it's just to trust God and trust that person to God because it's not over yet. You don't know what God's doing in that person's life. And he cares for each of us when we wrestle. Part of the reason God says to have mercy is because God is merciful to us. One of the, um, one of the things that came up uh, last week, by the way, we, there's, a few, there's a few references to homosexuality. And someone had a question for me after the message last week. And uh, one of the things, and I, I, gave, I gave a little bit more of a footnote. I think one of the ways that we have mercy is when it comes to homosexuality, um, God's, it's, really, it's not unclear what God says about it, whether it's right or wrong. Um, but sometimes it's very confusing about what to do with people that we know. And so one of the things that we do is, is if a person has not submitted their life to Jesus Christ and they're not Christians, and maybe they're in the wrestling phase and trying to find their way through faith, um, it is never our role to, um, to condemn and judge a person that's outside of God's family. Um, as it says here, we, we are to give mercy to them. We are at no point supposed to skirt the edges and try to make things sound okay that are not okay, like homosexuality, and we will always take a strong stance against the things that God says is off-limits. But when it comes to treating people, we'll always treat people with a lot of care and concern and love. And um, one of the next categories of of person that Jude talks about is um, save others by snatching them from the fire. So this seems to indicate that there are some people that have really embraced some destructive ideas. Like they're in the fire already. Or, Or behaviors. And maybe you know, maybe you see, you see people in your life and they're, they're destroying their life because of the stuff that they're into. And they're in the fire already. Earlier, some other references besides sexual sin, Jude also mentions rebellion, like just totally rebelling against God or unbelief. And so it makes you ask, well, how, how might you snatch a person <laughs> if you're going to snatch somebody from the fire? Um, I did once snatch my son from a real fire one time. <laughs> we, were, we were camping, and um, the fire, where the fire pit was, some of the dirt was dug out around it. And so he was walking really close to the fire. Kids love walking as close to the fire as possible. And so when he took a step, it was uneven, the dirt was uneven, and so he went like this. And um, I was grabbing him by the collar, and so he was like, he was like hanging like this for a second. And... Um, my kids were really impressed with, <laughs> my other kids were impressed with my saving skills. And so I'm like, I snatched you out of the fire. <laughs> and uh, this has happened also in, um, in the pool. We've gotten to the pool sometimes where it's been, maybe it's like the first pool of the season. And my, you know, if they're little and they don't 
put their floaties on yet. They just run, as soon as you open the gate, they run in twice. This has happened two two years in a row. My kid, like one of my little kids, just jumps into the water and then they just go down all the way. <laughs> so I'm like, phone out, okay, and jump and I jump in and then yank him out. And um, when that happened to Liana, she was like, I thought I was going to stay down there forever. And uh, I was like, I got you. So snatching. I, so this comes to mind for me. Snatching. He says. So save others by snatching them out of the fire. Snatch, when I snatched my kids, it was forceful and sudden. Did not take my time. Um, so how do you do this for a person, though? I think sometimes it's a matter of being really honest and truthful about the gospel to help people see the real fire that they're walking into eternally. Um, sometimes it's in pla- there's a place for blunt warnings about the gravity of a person's lost condition. I think that is a valid thing at times. Even, even, but, even, but even blunt warnings, though, blunt, truthful warnings are still done with respect and love. Um, because really, the goal is to really truly help a person eternally. Um, also, one, one, another way that we might snatch someone out of the fire is to counter false ideas with biblical truth. Sometimes as people share, and if there's an openness to dialogue, Maybe you can present what the Bible says, which runs in contradiction to what a person may believe. And we do that especially by using Scripture in conversation. If you have your Bible handy or if you know verses about things that can help shed a different perspective on things, this might be one of the ways that we snatch some from the fire. Um, Jude's brother, James, also the half-brother of Jesus, in his letter, he wrote something very similar. He said at the end of his letter, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from his error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amazingly, God gives us a role in redirecting people eternally sometimes. That's a profound privilege that we have, but we have to do it with truth and love. Um, and then there's one more category that he mentions about having mercy says, have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. This is a sort of a graphic imagery. It seems like he might be talking about soiled undergarments, um, underclothing that's soiled either by bodily emissions or perhaps a contagious skin disease or something very undesirable. And if we're not careful, we might catch what they got that we might fall into similar sins by association and relationship. This last verse, I think, is a really good summary of the concept, love the sinner, hate the sin. So he says, have mercy on others, but with fear, meaning like have a healthy respect for God's boundaries, okay? Because we we need to hate even, even the clothing or the garments that are defiled by the flesh, by sin. So even as we interact with people that are very, very far away from God, we can make an appeal for truth, but we can't slip into the same worldliness that they're in. We need a very healthy fear of God and be aware of God's coming judgment to keep ourselves on track. There are some people that you relate with, and there might be a very strong pull towards compromise. There are some people in your life, and you know, these might not be the best people for me to be hanging around with. You might think, I, there, there's... There's a, there's a temptation here that I, I really need to be aware of 
and like have a healthy respect for. So in this third category, there's, there's actually no indication that these ones will be saved from the fire, but their eternal destination does not change the fact that we are commanded to be merciful and compassionate with all people who sin. So in your life, do you know anybody that's wavering in doubt? Do you know anybody that has compromised morally? Do you, know, do you know anybody that's confused about the truth? I believe that not everyone who doubts is a lost cause. There's, there's time for a truth, for God to be merciful towards people, bring people around. We don't know what God has in store. Um, some people that are wavering, they might come around. And you might have an instrumental role in that person's life. I believe that God will use some of you sitting here in this room to save people from the fires of hell. It's very important that we live and relate the way that God instructs us to. Let me give you a couple of next steps you might consider in response to this passage. One next step for you, in light of all this, might be to step away from the edge of compromise. Maybe there's some of those areas that seem gray, and you're like, actually, these, you know, they're pretty black and white. There's, there's some really black, black and white things in Scripture that we want them to, to seem kind of like wishy-washy and gray, but like, no, like, it's really clear. There are some things in Scripture that are, by the way, gray. There's, there's some things that are clearly forbidden. There's some things that are discouraged, but not always sinful. And there's some things that are a matter of conscience. There's categories. And, but at least for the black and white things, the things that are forbidden, you may have to maybe make a decision to get away from those. Another next step might be to put distance between myself and discontent grumblers. If there are anybody in your life that you would say is just generally a grumbling, complaining person, I mean, if they're family members, you might not have a choice <laughs> entirely. <laughs> um, but if you have a choice, in terms of like the people that you run with and the people that you hang with and the people that you just water cooler conversation with, those are the people, if you can put distance I think that would be helpful to, to keep yourself more in, in, the, in the path of truth. Another next step might be to express an act of loving mercy towards someone who's wavering. What would it look like for you to express loving care and mercy to somebody who's doubtful, uncertain about things? How might you express patience and care? And then another next step might be to pray for God's mercy on a doubter and then patiently wait. Maybe you've really done all that you can do and you still see someone heading for a cliff or they're already in the free fall and you think there's nothing I can do but I can pray for God's mercy on that person because nobody's too far gone. God can turn around any person and I'll patiently wait to see what God does. Next week, I want to look at what do you do? So this is kind of like, today was, what do, you, what do you do if you see someone else veering off track? And you're like, ah, it seems like they're a lost cause. And like, I'm going to give up hope on that person. But next week, what, what if you see yourself as a lost cause? And you're like, I am such a mess. I just, there's, yeah, I'm Christian going to church, but like, there's no hope for change for me. I'm, I'm just, I'm, if you're, in, if you're in that place, I want, I'm excited for the topic next week. It's also one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 
saving it for last for this last topic. And so I hope you come back and join us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. It's time to gather and for your word. Um, it's very, very clear that you will bring a day of judgment in the end, and in, um, it'll be a display of both your uh, justice and wrath and also your love and your mercy, and uh, it's very important that we bring ourselves and our lives in alignment with your word. And I pray, Lord, that you'd use us and people here to snatch others out of the fire, to, to express mercy in the way that you would, Lord Jesus. And for those of us that are doubting here, too, I pray that you would help us. You would mercifully bring truth and clarity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.